Annabelle Neal and Bill Smith. And this is part of a, this, I believe, series that we often have here from time to time. And in a time-honored tradition, our two members who will speak today will share their beliefs and why they chose to practice them here. Annabelle tells me that she should be known as a work in progress. I don't think I believe that. <laughs> and Bill Smith, well, Bill, you've been here a long time and have inspired us so very much, and you're here to do it again for us. So without further ado, Annabelle, it's all yours. You'll be first, Bill will be next, and there will be no questions today since our speakers have shared their own beliefs with us. We can seek them out downstairs if we have some burning things to ask them. A poem from Billy Collins. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony, full blast. But I can hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I see him sitting in the orchestra. His head raised confidently as if Beethoven included a part for a barking dog. When the record finally ends, he is still barking sitting there in the oboe section, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo, that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. <laughs> this is my favorite Billy poem. I offer it up here today because I can, and because I like it so very much. I especially like the name that Billy gave this, to this poem. It's called, Another Reason I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. <laughs> Isn't that worth it? <laughs> okay, enough nonsense. We'll get down to business. But I have to let you know, David LaDuca has made four of my points already. <laughs> So I may, you may hear some words that you've heard already this morning. I was born in 1943, right smack in the middle of the Second World War. As I was growing up, my mother told me early and often that I was heiress to eight uninterrupted generations of Methodist genes. Methodism was my destiny. I embraced that destiny wholeheartedly. Methodism became the water I drank and the air that I breathed. As we entered our senior year of high school where I lived, we were urged to begin deciding on a career so we could select a college or university that offered appropriate education for our ambitions. I had no problem whatsoever settling on my vocation. I would train to become a Methodist missionary. I selected India as the country that I would convert to Christianity. I expected the job to take about four years. <laughs> then at some point, I found out that the Indian peoples of Southeast Asia did not all speak English. <laughs> Why not? The country belonged to England for two centuries. 
How could they not speak English? Well, if they didn't speak English, I could not help them. <laughs> I would stay right at home and become a religious education director. I attended a wonderful Presbyterian university that offered an excellent RD, RE degree program, and I worked as a youth director at a local Methodist church to pay my way through school. <clears throat> then, as so often happens, Real life started happening while I was busy making other plans. My father died when I was 19. I dropped out of school and never finished. I married at 20 and I was a mother by 21. The following 15 years were a bit of a blur. I was the working wife and mother with, with two kids, using almost all of my spare time for church wear that became little more than a flurry of activity within the walls of the church building. In spite of all the hard work that I, I did, I had a feeling that there was nothing I could ever do to be good enough not to be in need of constant celestial forgiveness. My husband David was struggling with the same issues and he started attending a Unitarian church in our town. I followed a short time thereafter. The sense of guilt that I'd been carrying for so long began to melt away, and God did not strike me dead on the sidewalk. I was in. I've now been a Unitarian Universalist longer than I was a Methodist. I do not regret for a minute the years that I spent in the Methodist Church. They were on the whole very lovely years, filled with good friends, a sense of purpose and fulfillment. But when that all ceased to be the case, I had to make a change. I had to choose another course. So here I am now, 74 years old, still trying to figure things out. Here's some of the questions that I've been asking myself. What do I really know for sure? What do I really not know for sure? What do I think about God? What do I think about Jesus? What do I know about love? These are the things I'm going to be talking about for the next few minutes. First of all, what do you really know for sure? Oprah Winfrey used to end her interviews with famous people with this question. I listened to those replies for years. They ranged from flippant to very deeply felt. I've given a lot of thought to what I know for sure by exploring a slightly different question. What is the nature of knowing? I see now two fitting in as two categories of knowing, observational knowing and confessional knowing. Observational knowing is something that we observe with our own eyes so that we absolutely know that it happened and it's true. My example, I know the sun came up this morning because I saw it. Observational knowing is a pretty small category when you really think about it. Confessional knowing is, well, it's everything else. It is what we choose to believe is true and right. Example, the old hymn, I know, I know that my Redeemer liveth. It's an expression of trust and faith. It's what we want to believe to be true. It's the process we go through when we choose to live our lives a certain way with certain values, and it's, it's as applicable to religious texts as it is to the periodic table. What do I think about God? 
As a child, my vision of what God looked like was remarkably similar to Professor Dumbledore dressed in white. The God was ensconced on the top of a three-layered universe, heaven, earth, and hell. If I was good enough, a good enough person my entire life, I would eventually graduate to heaven and all eternity. Now, I wasn't exactly clear about what I was going to do with myself forever, but I figured I had time to figure that out. There was, however, this sin and guilt business that might spoil the whole thing. When I was working as a youth director, I remember a little boy named Chris talking to the preacher one Sunday evening after church service. Uh, Reverend Harold, do you know the story of the Garden of Eden? Why, yes, Chris, I do know that story. You, do you know the part where Adam and Eve sinned and God made them leave the Garden of Eden and go to work? <laughs> yes, Chris, I know that part of the story. Well, do you think if someone was really, really good and never sinned, he would still have to work? <laughs> Well, Chris was one disappointed little boy that night. (laughs) Let me have a sip of water. Here at Wolf, I've heard a lot of conversations about the existence of God. The arrangement of beliefs and opinions are quite varied. I've been back and forth myself on this question more times than I can count. Here's when I'm going to slip in a third way of knowing, which is, what can I not know? Is there really a God? I don't know, but I can't rule it out. I understand Neil deGrasse Tyson's contention that the universe could have essentially created itself without the intervention of a supreme being, but that in itself doesn't rule out the possibility of one. For my own part, I kind of hope there is. What do I believe about Jesus? What do I think about love? I'm putting these two together because, for me, they essentially have the same answer. I believe the story of Jesus is the story of love. I believe Jesus. You may notice I didn't say I believe in Jesus. I believe this man we call Jesus did, in fact, walk on the earth. I believe he was fully human, but not divine. As far back as my college theology days, I could never understand the purpose of a trinity. I just didn't buy that this all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe needed a committee to help run it. (laughs) Likewise, I've never been a biblical literalist. I do believe the Bible contains the wisdom of the ages in song, in legend, and in parable. I read quite a lot of it over 70 years, and I still find it compelling. Let me say again, I believe the story of Jesus is the story of love. He was always talking about how people were to treat one another. He talked about respect, consideration, sympathy, compassion, gentleness, selflessness, thoughtfulness, benevolence, and kindness, always kindness. Kindness is my favorite one. So here's what I would tell Oprah, should she ever ask me what I know for sure. 
Love is what fuels this planet. Human beings thrive in the presence of love. I see evidence of this around me every day, everywhere I go, and it goes beyond puppies and kittens and babies. Maybe observational knowing isn't so rare after all. I believe that love is as, as essential to human survival as air and water. Did you see pictures of tiny little babies in Halloween costumes with their young parents this past week? That's love. Perhaps you saw the result of a recent study on failure to thrive syndrome that clearly demonstrates orphan babies who are left alone in cribs with scarcely any human contact die at an alarming rate compared to orphan babies who are held and cuddled and fed by humans every day. Child development specialists tell us that socially isolated kids can survive and even thrive in school if they have just one friend. That's love. Perhaps you saw the program on nature last week where orphan chimpanzees were reunited with their human foster parents after the chimpanzees had lived in the wild for a decade or more. That was love. I could go on with many more examples, but you get my point. Love fuels life on this planet. Human beings thrive in the presence of love. In closing, I have three admonitions for you. Number one, we Unitarian Universalists are a messy lot. We beat each other up over the dumbest things. Don't do that. Let's just stop it. Number two, always seek new ways to show your love to both friend and stranger. And last, but certainly not least, be especially kind to yourselves. I love you all. Annabelle Neal, work in progress. Amen. Thank you, Annabelle. And now, Bill Smith. Since I am computer illiterate, this uh, presentation, this introduction didn't come through to Alexis, so I will read a little bit of it. He lived in an American society until he was 19 years old. American territory, I should say learning racism firsthand and a violent resistance to American presence. I was not able to connect with the Protestant religion I was taught. Alcohol became my way of coping with the world at the age of 13. I began to learn how to be hospitable to others and at the same time to forgive myself. Community was the only way I could accomplish this. This I believe. All of us have been a part of community at some point in life. Being here today is one example for me. Community is an ongoing effort for myself, never ending. We learn who we are, what we can, can and can't do, how we can do it. We learn this from family, friends, textbooks, preachers, counselors, teachers, and on goes the list as we go on. I can learn the most important lessons from experience, but too many times I can only use that lesson with what I've been taught to put meaning to it. 
This I believed at the time. Everyone changes during life to some degree at their own pace. I was fortunate to be led to the Veterans Administration Mental Health Group by two veterans who had gone before me. This began my journey through many other types of groups through which I found a type of community in everyone. I used singles, counseling, couples, marriage, and groups counseling. After time, I attended racial groups, religious groups, church and academic environments, which gave me the, uh, this idea of finding out everything I could about life and try to put the knowledge to some purpose. This I believe. All of these groups taught me that I had to have the courage to investigate my own beliefs, fears, and insecurities. These are things to be learned from each other and everyone else. All I had to do was listen. I wonder why that is so hard to do. I have learned that humility is my path to strength and promise in a life that I have learned and needs the support and information from all others. I have a long way to go. This I believe. Anyone can change, but I had to be aware that the change was necessary for me to live a life a different way, to experience life a different way, to be willing to cross over from the material to the spiritual. I began to learn that life is not measured by the material gains that I will leave behind, but by the spiritual gains that I can do for others. I learned that spirituality is not religion. To begin that process, I had to first understand the necessity to examine the self. I began this journey through Alcoholics Anonymous. The recent sermon by Tracy here gave us information about being hospitable to ourselves as we are being hospitable to others. For me, that means beginning the process of forgiving myself while I am in the process of forgiving others. It is a process, and it will take me a lifetime for me to be aware that forgiveness is necessary is the first step. Mike Hasty was a medic in Vietnam, a local Portlander. Learn to forgive, and this is a quote for him, learn to forgive yourself, bring loving people into your life because you cannot forgive yourself alone. Let the self-inflicted guilt die instead of you. This I believe. It was easy for me to side with those in power. It's very difficult to dispel ignorance if I maintain arrogance. I am a prisoner of my own experience. I have to be especially critical of my own belief system. Every day I ask myself, do my behaviors harm someone else? This I believe. Today I try to accept all races, cultures, and creeds, at least not to openly condemn them based on my beliefs. I try to live the idea of spirituality, quote, to do unto them as they would have me do. Accepting the differences is a process. The work is difficult, especially when differences go against my beliefs. I accept that I will never get there, but I'll try. It's a lifetime process. One of my most cherished groups for community is RAP. That's an acronym for Right Around Portland. The members of the various RAP groups come from low-income housing, halfway houses, alcohol and drug-free communities, 
prisons, and on goes the list. One of our lady members mentioned how her daughter, a social worker, was commenting on how many people were being affected by the wildfires in Northern California and were migrating into her area for help. These people were displaced by a natural disaster, yet her daughter's comment also included how many, how much community was generated by the people who came from so many different places and had a common purpose, to support each other, to assist in healing, to raise spirits and encouragement. My mind leaps to the refugees leaving other parts of the world, their homes, because of disasters, natural and man-made. Were these people in California of another race, a different culture, a different religion? Yes, probably all of the above, but maybe most of them were American citizens. Oh well, I guess that makes a difference, huh? This I believe. The family that was referred to by the social justice members here on October 15th were classified as illegal aliens in their own mind. Living in fear of being deported, it was a perfect example of the kind of situation we need to confront that lets those of other cultures know that we are willing to question authority. The first thing that came to my mind while listening to the social justice presentation was the Munich trials when the common response was, I was only following orders. Will the ICE agents, or more appropriately, their superiors, ever be brought to trial for their part in following the finger-pointing of our government? After all, they were only following orders. Are we untouchable? Are we really the upstanding, self-righteous leaders of the world? No, they present... Ken Burns and Lynn Novick present many things that I already knew years ago and things that I needed to hear again from other sources. I am in the process of forgiving. I haven't got there yet. Wolf is a community group that says, no, we are not upstanding and self-righteous. We simply are and do what we can as a group of people trying to help others. I hope that I have become willing to be willing to get out of my comfort zone to allow myself to experiment by association with others of culture, color, and religion and race. I came to Wolf about three years ago. I heard my version of community. I began to hear personal stories relating to other ways of life, to different beliefs, to different races and cultures. Is Buddhism a religion for me? Not in my lifetime. It is a way of life. Buddhism has taught me the value of meditation and how I can be aware of my ego. The concentration, the congregation I attend here at Woof is about community. I continue to believe that as I learn to use community and use meditation, that I can, will be able to live with myself. I also believe Everything about life is in a state of flux. If I think I am so willing, why is it so difficult for me to flux? Annabelle and Bill, thanks so very much again. You've both given us so much to think about. Thank you.